Welcome to Rocking Your Prize. I'm your host, Alice Evans, and today I'm joined by the great Suresh Naidu, who's a professor of economics at Columbia University. Now, back in 2019, we recorded an excellent podcast on monopsonies, democracy, and economic growth. Since then, we've seen massive change with the COVID pandemic, a democratic presidency, and pro-poor wage growth. So today, I want to chat to Suresh again to ask him more questions about the US labor movement, automation, immigration, and support for Donald Trump. So, Suresh, starting off with the US labor movement, you have a fantastic paper. Uh, first of all, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. My, my, my great pleasure to be on this show again. Okay, awesome. So in your paper, Is There Any Future for a US Labor Movement? You argue that most Americans like and really want unions, but they're restricted by institutional frictions. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, so I think that's a good sort of first pass summary. I think one of the things I've learned since writing that paper because of some new surveys that have been done that sort of explicitly ask, um, do you know? Do you know what a union is? Uh And I'm sort of shocked at actually the baseline lack of knowledge. And so among people that know what a union is, they're like super into it. But there's like a lot of just, particularly among young workers, they just have no experience. They don't know anyone that's been in a union. Um, and so it's like the rates of like, I don't know on that. When, the, when you put that as an option, you get a, you, uh, on How a survey. High? What? Like, uh, I think it's 30% across the whole population and 40% for young workers. It's just like, I don't know. And uh, uh, like when you ask them, would you vote for a union tomorrow? And you give them uh, like, I don't know, mm. not sure uh, as an option. You get like that. That's a, that's a fairly large thing. So I think that's an interesting check on my sort of, you know, uh, uh, prior that what I, what I wrote that was based on the survey evidence at the at the time was that it was just like a very high baseline rate but a lot of the surveys don't give the I don't know option and so I think one of the things that's happening that's sort of driving this is that more people are actually figuring out what a union is and what it can do for you and uh, and they're not kind of particularly among younger workers they don't have this I don't know like historical memory or cultural memory that was there in the uh, that was like like anti-union sentiment. And so it's really among older uh, and retired people that you have this kind of like legacy of like some anti-union sentiment. But, you know, young workers are super into uh, into unions and young workers of color are super into unions. Um, and uh, it's just generally been true that like, like African-American workers have generally been much more pro-union than white and now interact that with, with age and you have like a really high levels of, of demand for, 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 or like union curiosity. Mm. I'm union curious. I'm union curious. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, uh, uh, and so I think that's one of the things that's, that's, uh, changed post COVID. Um, and then it's just the case that in the U S the employer opposition is just amazingly high. Uh, and I think so like inefficiently high it's, you know, uh, employers are so knee-jerk anti-union, and then there's an extremely well-developed and uh, uh, sort of like anti-union consultants and playbooks. And you know, as soon as you run uh, a union campaign, you'll basically like. There's actually an episode of this TV show, Superstore, mm. that's kind of like a fictionalized big box retail where they actually like have a <laughs> union campaign, and uh, uh, and then the guy, then basically like. Nobody from higher management is willing to talk to you, but then as soon as there's like a union 
threat. Like basically you can go straight to the top of management and they'll sort of like uh, talk to you. And it's sort of true that they'll start sending in consultants and HR people and, um, and just spend a lot of resources in avoiding unions. And so I think like there's a real, uh, a real anti-union hostility among U.S. employers. And because of the structure of U.S. labor law, it only takes a little bit of employer hostility to really uh, thwart a unionizing attempt. So it's because of this, you know, we had this National Labor Relations Act in the United States, which I think has like a good idea behind it was the idea was that, you know, the natural units of worker solidarity are individual workplaces. And so you want to have a bargaining unit be democratically ratified by kind of a workplace. And so that's why we have elections to recognize uh, to recognize unions. But then as that National Labor Relations Act kind of got uh, defanged by the Supreme Court, sort of it wound up being uh, uh, effectively kind of used as an anti-union tool by employers. And so as soon as like workers sort of get over the threshold to have an election, a whole suite of anti-union tactics kind of come into come into play. They'll call in workers on one-on-one meetings. They'll, mm-hmm. uh, something I've seen in my work with unions is just the incredibly effective use of race as a division in the workplace where they're like, that group of workers, they're like the Kenyans. They're not really on the same side as you guys. And so it's just like they're extremely good at sort of dividing a workplace so that you even after you get an election off the ground, uh, you know, you're not necessarily always going to win. Um, and so I think, you know, when, when, when I just think of like the big structural reasons why union density has declined, it's kind of like, it's the natural thing of like already unionized businesses going out of business and that's mm-hmm. fine. That's like, you know, you should, uh, a robust labor movement should be able to handle, uh, you know, that some businesses are going to mm-hmm. go under and new businesses are going to form, mm-hmm. but because the labor movement has not been able uh, for like 50 years to keep the organizing rate of new businesses equal to the exit rate of already yes. unionized businesses. They're just kind of like on this hamster wheel where it's just mm-hmm. declining. And so this is it kind of puts a lot of people in, the, in, in policy and in the labor movement to sort of think about new models of labor organizing and labor um, representation that kind of look much more like Europe, where you have kind of maybe a, a sectoral bargaining arrangement where there's like a, a, instead of trying to organize every single firm, you try to negotiate a contract that kind of uh, covers the entire sector without necessarily having to go firm by firm, which is this like kind of, uh, um, you know, desperately futile process in the, in, the, in the U.S. And so we're starting to see experiments with that in Minnesota, in California, a little bit in New York. Um, and some of what's pushed that is actually the rise of the gig economy where it's like very clear that, you know, this is, <laughs> this is, uh, um, you know, not something that you're going to be able to win at the firm level. So you need to kind of pass some kind of sector wide regulation on wages to sort of basically make sure that for like a food delivery, uh, in New York, which I've sort of worked with the city on this a bit, but then you'll see it in like Seattle and other places where you have these wage restrictions, uh, wage floors for, for gig workers. It's because there's like, you know, there's, there are a fair number of gig workers um, almost, you know, that, that only work like a few hours of the thing a week and they are possi- they're sometimes opposed the wage floor because they, they like the option of being able to make only a little bit here and there. And so that, but then you have like a, a, a big chunk of workers for whom this is a full-time job. 
And so you kind of want to ensure that, that you know, you're covering those workers for whom it's a full-time job. And that might actually wind up rationing out some of these uh, more, you know, uh, more, more marginal workers. But that's been kind of the model for regulating the gig economy has become these like, like you know, minimum wages or sectoral agreements um, uh, and things like that. And I think that's, that's probably good. And, but it does bring this question of like, who's represented on the worker side in the, and the employer side in, this, in the sectoral agreements. And so it kind of comes back to questions of like democratic representation and things because, you know, it's one thing when some technocratic commission decides your wage, but it's another thing when kind of like a democratic organization representing those workers has is a, is a seat at the table. And you kind of want more of the latter and less of the former, but the mix of of, of things in the U.S. is looks much more like the like the former. Um, uh, so I don't know. Did I, you know that's I perfect, perfect, perfect. Okay, I have, I have one more example to offer. I don't know if you saw it. Amazon had this anti-union flyer, which had like rainbow color background, and they framed anti-unionism as individualism. Like you don't want someone else to resent. You talk to us directly. Mm-hmm. We're listening to you. We're you speak for yourself. Don't you know? And it was, I thought it was hilarious. Um, okay, so I want to push back a little bit. Yep. So your argument is that Americans really, young Americans really, really want, really want unions, but they're constrained by all these institutions and hostility. And that argument is partly, you know, you, you say, well, look, if you ask people if they like unions, they say yes. But then here I wonder, what about people's competing priorities, right? So if maybe, and like, if we look at workers gravitating towards Donald Trump, like in terms of their revealed preferences, they're they're gravitating towards an anti-unionist president who is saying, let's make America great again. And doesn't that suggest that even if workers like unions in abstract, when it comes to their crunch, that's not their overriding preference? Well, it's it's an interesting thing. So like, for example, I think uh, smartly that the, some unions like understand that their membership really offers them like is really likes a Trump and they kind of are because they're, you know, democratic organizations, they need to like account for the preferences of the, uh, of their, of their members. But then they also need to establish that they're actually not their independence. Not like the democratic party has historically been super pro union. Like, but it is the, now, it is, it is now. now and they're choosing an It wasn't under Obama, for example. Right. Sure. Sure. Uh, sure. But and, now uh, you see, so, so what I think, yeah. but, but, and I, so, and I think it's probably related to this other stuff I've been working on about like the, the rise of like the, 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 the Brahmin left and in, in the, uh, you know, all over the, all over the West, but you know, now that these center-left parties are so controlled by the highly educated, you know, even if they say they're like pro-union, the kinds of unions that they're pro and the kinds of ways they have of representing actual like like working class and blue-collar interests are just not present. So it's like, why should I believe you? <laughs> um, and I think that's like a that's like a hard thing that I think all the parties of the center-left need to have a deep reckoning. It's like, when do you actually have people? from like actual workers who like do things in not in offices in the day, like at the table in deciding your policy priorities. Uh, and, and, and that was one thing that, you know, the labor movement made sure happened, but it's like, uh, it's, it's, it's rare. It's, it's much rarer in the U S today. And so even though the party kind of as a policy agenda is pro union and, and is doing, you know, what it can, I'm not sure it, 
has the mechanisms to credibly promise that'll that will continue to do that. And it's partly because it was like just so recently a neoliberal party. Yes. <laughs> um, and it's not clear its social base has changed in a way that can let it credibly commit to not being a neoliberal party. Yes. It's still like run by a bunch of, you know, basically Yale Law School is your pathway to control in the Democratic Party and it's uh, uh, and so there's just and the you know it's just like totally run by the Ivy League and so why would you why would you trust it I wouldn't trust mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, okay, I want to ask a question of, and that relates to the point about the gig economy. Um, you write the U.S. workers are spending less time with their co-workers and this decline in associational associational life is hurting social capital. Um, but I wonder, many working class men are prepared to spend time and energy in investing in another kind of activism, which has made America great. So I was in small town Alabama and loads of people would love to go to Trump rallies. So even if there's a decline in associational life, you can ch- even if there's a decline in, you know, being on the factory floor, people still choose to organize for the Make America Great campaign. So that's, that's, that's interesting. So I'm wondering, do we think of showing up at a rally as association as a political rally as associational life i'm not sure i'm not sure I, I i accept the premise because associational life is the thing where it's like you regularly have like real durable relationships with the other people in the room not you know in some ways i think of the campaign rally as much more like kind of all we're all watching a tv show together but it's every day. Like, so in, I was in small town Alabama. You know, I'd go into a restaurant. I would go into, like, a barbecue place, and people would be talking about Trump. That's interesting. Right? And, so, like, and, people would say, my president, right? They, this was, like, last year, and they are all saying, my president. <laughs> and, you know, people were loving Trump, and it's every day, and it's part of the conversation. And you see Trump hats. You see, or you see Trump slogans on cars. And it's like, even if those people in small town Alabama are not working in the same place, they're not on the same factory floor, it's part of the shared culture I, that we're pro-Trump. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, to the extent... I guess I'm saying like what what is declined as so is like this or what I'm thinking the decline is really in is in the social capital at work, and it, I think there's like other evidence of just like you know generic Bob Putnam stuff about decline in social capital period. I, mean, mm. I sort of think that's that's there's probably that's you know I, I I see no reason not to believe that evidence, but. Um, the I think it's like the and the evidence I was able to look at was just the stuff of like how often do you talk to your friends at, at work outside of work? Yes, yes. Uh, and that sort of seems particularly for less educated uh, uh, workers to to have declined. And so these like little clumps of social capital, and I you know that's mm. totally true. You hold, you still hang out with friends, but they're less likely to be friends from your job. And so that like little bits of like like the the nucleus of workplace communities that would form the basis for like an organizing committee and a union drive or something like that who are just kind of like a little bit weaker than they once were and particularly in low-wage workplaces where the turnover rates are extremely high and so like like cooperation and relationships at work are just you know, harder to come by. I'm totally with you. I'm totally with you that there's a decline in workplace cooperation. There's a decline in general social capital. All I'm saying is, even if all those things are true, people are still willing to invest in talking about and championing a political cause they care about. Yeah, that's- and political. I mean, I think it's you know, I think that's true. It's like like there's there. Uh, I do wonder. I'm curious what you think about this. Like like, yes, we will see the politically passionate. Those will still be there, but. There's basically also just a large set of people that are like, meh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> this sure. political system has yes, nothing to offer yes, me. Yes, Neither yes. of these parties have anything to offer me. I, 
uh, I don't feel like my vote matters. There's like, yeah, I think there's also just like a massive like democratic disengagement kind of thing where it's like, eh, meh. Yes, I totally agree. I totally agree with you. And so it's not, I don't think that there's this huge reservoir of passionate political communities out there that are, that are really, really uh, 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 stoked about participating in the republic. Uh, 100%, 100%. I'm with you. And there's a really great uh, report called Hidden Tribes, and it talks about people at the most extremes are most likely to be vocal and shout the loudest yeah. and be very active. And the people in the middle are like, I don't really identify with either of these extremes. Yeah, although there's other stuff, right? It's also like the people in the middle, it's just that they're extreme on like uncorrelated issues. <laughs> it's, <from> like, <laughs> it's like that there's actually no actual moderates. They're just like people with like, like uh, with, with it, it, everyone's got kind of extreme opinions, but the activists, have, all their extreme opinions go in one way. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, and if you actually find out, I feel like this is one thing that social media has kind of shown us is that like, wow, when you actually look at like, <laughs> look into the minds of your fellow citizens. You might not like what you actually see. <laughs> um, I feel that every day with you, Suresh. Okay, so my next question. There's a new um, survey by Monmouth University, and they find that Joe Biden's approval rating is below 40%, and they also find that 70% of people express concerns on immigration, and they also the U.S. public give him very little credit for the economy. So I wonder... Americans have seen, especially the poorest Americans, low wage, there's been massive pro-poor wage growth. And like, doesn't that suggest that a lot of Americans, even though their wages have increased, it's like they don't value that, 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 that rising income doesn't seem to be the thing they care about the most. They seem to have other cultural concerns besides rising wages. Like if you're, if rising wages were your topmost thing, surely you'd favor the government that gives you rising wages. Why would you be so concerned about immigration? So, so I think, well, I think we should untangle a couple of things there. One is the, I think that, that, you know, uh, there's this old Schiller idea that, you know, you attribute price, you blame price increases on the government, you, but you blame wage increases on yourself. And so it's like, you might have earned your wage increases, but you're like, the price of eggs. <laughs> Um, and, and so the, and that shock of the 2021, 2022 inflation was just really like destabilizing and, and, uh, uh, upsetting and now it's coming down, but we're still kind of dealing with the hangover from, from, from that shock. And so the prediction of that view is that as inflation continues to come down, we'll kind of see the attitudes towards the economy, like coming back. Um, so that's, that's, that's one, you know, mm, if you're, if we're mm, actually mm, that's mm, also mm, conditional on us measuring inflation properly, which I'm never quite mm. sure about, uh, because it's like, we have a specific basket of goods that we look at for, for inflation and we try to update it, but it's certainly not the comprehensive measure of like a household's expenditure patterns that, 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 that you'd like. Actually, like there's a recent paper that came out that said that like once you include borrowing costs for example in the cpi you get uh you can account for this like like uh um distaste for the economy is because like even though overall inflation looks like it's come down once you include these borrowing costs that, that does not come down so i think there's even on the case of like real wages mm -hmm. there's an um, inflation there's still a okay. question and so wait wait so are you saying you're not sure that Poor people have seen a big rise in their real wages. I'm saying it's like, yeah. You, you don't well, I, do, that? I do think they, they have. It's like, like, it's unlikely that these other adjustments are like big enough to undo the big increase. So in you the accept wages. there's been a pro I, 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 I expect that I, I, I accept that like at the bottom, mm. real wages have risen. Mm. And uh, 
Yes, but I'm, uh, but I also am like, you know, the reason that people are, are take that and are still thinking that the economy is is not going well is could be because we're like overstating the real like well being change that's associated with that uh, real wage change because of the, uh, and or the way in which people translate like the combination of their own real wage increase but the memory of inflation into a political support is just a little bit more complicated okay. uh, uh, than this. So I think before I take before I accept the premise that like the economy isn't the first order thing, we should just unpack what's in the economy. Uh, uh, um, uh, as you know, it's like how, how people, if, if only vulgar materialism worked very mechanically so that you were just like, oh, your wages went up under this president, I'm gonna vote for this president, if only. So I think we should uh, um, uh, take that, uh, you know, uh, 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 and so it might just get better, right? Okay, and, and, okay. Uh, um, so, but then um, I also think the immigration stuff is, it's, you know, uh, like my, tw- something like 15 to 20% of my daughter's uh, class was like Venezuelan refugees last year um, because of, you know, because we had a migrant crisis and New York City had, had to accommodate them. And so I think we should, um, you know, uh, and I think, you know, it's, it is probably, it is actually probably true that without like an actual process and orderly procedure to handle the influx at the border, it's going to be a disaster. I mean, regardless of your beliefs about how many total people the U.S. should let in, the, the fact that the process ought to be sort of standardized and efficiently run and not like decentralized to, to institutions without the budgets to handle it, that's insane. Mm. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, like, like, uh, you, you want like, a uh, and, and it's going to be, it's just, you know, I just think it's coming, kind of like, I don't necessarily see any forces that are going to make the, the demand for migration go down. So I think it's just actually like, it's an interest, it's like, not just interesting, it's like a morally important challenge for social democracies to figure out how to accommodate the, 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 you know, how, how do you stay a high-wage country in a low-wage world yes, uh, that's uh, a great without, point, yes. without um, trampling on the human rights of the people that want to get in? Uh, I think that's a, that's a good political and ethical question that, that we should scramble with without, without accepting sort of like the, the, the rights position, which is that the first, the only loyalty of a state is to the people that are citizens which I just, uh, like, I, I agree that you can have that view. I just, it's not mine. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, it's probably, you know, it's, uh, uh, I'm like, yeah, it's my, it's, uh, uh, um, nationalism is just like the worst thing. And I've, uh, it's, uh, um, and so, uh, so, so I think immigration, though, there, there probably could have been a way, there could be a way to handle it that, uh, did not generate this political backlash, but our political system was just too gridlocked to build that pathway. But we should try to build that build that pathway. And actually, I think like it, like you know, there's this interesting way in which like depending on how you treat immigrants, mm. interacting with the presence of like monopsony in the labor market, you can actually get. So, for example, imagine a world where like employers can't discriminate between immigrants and native-born workers. So you can't pay them a different wage, and then you let in a whole bunch of immigrants. So if those immigrants are actually more mobile than the native-born workers, 
then because employers are like, oh, well, now when I raise the wage, I actually lose that many more workers because these migrants are like moving, that actually raises the level of labor market competition for everybody, both natives and immigrants. So by introducing a population that's very mobile into the workforce, you, improve, you increase uh, the extent to which employers have to compete with each other. But that's only if they're very mobile. So if you introduce a bunch of workers that because they're either persecuted or like attached on guest worker visas, they're not very mobile, that's not going to induce this like competition among employers and that's going to lower the wage for uh, native born workers. So it's like really the effect of immigration on native born workers is really going to depend on how you treat how you integrate those immigrants into the labor market. And so like almost the worst thing is to let in a whole bunch of immigrants, not let them work in the, 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 the legal economy, force them into an underground economy where they're gonna be directly, the only jobs are going to be taking are the ones that are directly in competition with the lowest wage Americans. And then they're also, because they're not sure about whether or not they're gonna be able to stay or anything like that, they're not going to like, you know, try to save to build houses, try to start their own businesses. They're instead going to be trying to send everything back in the way of remittances. And so then you're not going to get all these multiplier effects that uh, let you uh, uh, sort of like offset some of the effects they have on the market. So anyway, uh, that's a long-winded way to say like immig immigration is complicated. And, uh, but I, I think it's like, you know, to the extent that I uh, think it's like the one thing we know how to do that raises the well-being of people in poor countries, we should like figure it out. And uh, uh, and yeah, and so so it's. Uh, um, I don't know what to no, I'm with you. I'm with you. So yeah. I just wanted to. So let me. I want to just sort of distill my push pushback. Yeah. So it's like. Suresh, you're saying that, you know, American workers like unions, but there are all these institutional constraints and bullying yeah, and hostility. Yeah. And I'm saying, well, if we look at people's revealed preferences, they also seem to be favoring Donald Trump and they also seem to be very anti-immigration. And so they seem to be favoring that kind of ideology and agenda. So let me draw a parallel with India. So lots of people, you know, they try to figure out the rise of the BJP and the, the rise of Modi, and they'll often point to economic things, or they'll say, you know, Modi's good at providing pro-poor services, or they'll say, you know, Modi's very charismatic and he knows how to use WhatsApp. But, you know, if you look at people's preferences, many people are Hindu nationals totally. and they want an authoritarian leader, <laughs> yes. right? And so I'm saying there are these sort of parallels that, you know, I'm saying, well, you know, in both America and the US, you've got people who like this sort of nationalistic agenda. Yes. And these cultural preferences matter and they shape things. And, you know, even if an Indian worker might like the idea of unions as well, you know, like when it comes to crunch. Trump thing, When it comes to crunch. So, but, but wait, I, 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 if, if your pushback, mm. let's just let's, like, try to distill the pushback. Mm. The, the pushback can be, it's, um, we, you know, the... Us like like materialist uh, 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 theories of politics fail because there's a cultural independent dimensions that matter, and so you can have all this stuff about what you think about economic policy or what you think about your own personal wages, and that's only like you know a little bit of what goes into the the political affiliations right, of right. Uh, um, of people. I think that's. Like, and just so, to expand yeah. on that, like you see that Modi is doing well, even if people are struggling in the economy. Like, you know, people might have an overriding. People might reward a politician that supports, you know, their Hindu nationalist cultural agenda. So I think that I, but I don't see, I wouldn't, what do I want to uh, say here? I feel like the, the cultural stuff is extremely slippery. Like what is seen as moderate? So take abortion. 
<laughs> um, and which, you know, it's like now it might be the like one thing that saves the, the Democrats in, in, in this election. But, you know, you had very recently the Democratic Party being like, well, we need to be really moderate on abortion, like safe, legal and rare. And uh, um, and yet the the what the the underlying terrain of culture and what is like moderate and what is left or right, I think those those valences move around a lot. And so it's difficult to sort of, I think, you know, I think you'll get moments where like culture looks like it really matters, but then the terms of that culture can shift very, very rapidly. Um, and so I guess I'm sort of saying that, I, you know, and there's certainly going to be elections where the, 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 the sort of quote unquote cultural things are, you know, mm. matter a bit. But I think there's a lot of ways in which, you, you know, the, 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 if particularly on this economic stuff, it's that like reliably you, you know, there's going to be some, some advantage to the economy doing well for the politicians that are running it, whether or not they deserve it. It's a, uh, uh that's true. And, you know, I even think a lot of the cultural issues are also material issues. So, like, you know, I have oh, this... Oh, you would. What? <laughs> you well, would. Well, yeah, like, well, but, or it's like, how do you, how do we even think about the economy, I think, is also tied up with our, with moral perspectives and stuff. And so, you know, like, I have this paper with Ileana Kizemko and Nicholas Marx about, like, pre-distribution versus redistribution, and just sort of showing that, like, less educated voters tend to really favor uh, things like the minimum wage, unions, job guarantees... Uh, like direct labor market interventions, whilst people with like college uh, with with higher education are much more open to like tax and transfer and like uh, welfare spending as the tools for implementing egalitarian policy. So there's like a real, um, you know, even though the as a policy, they're both like egalitarian policies, how you actually do it really matters to people. And so there's like a, a there's I, I don't know if I want to call it a cultural understanding, but there's like a way in which, you know, something that to an economist might be like, well, why would you do this like inefficient form of redistribution when you can get the same outcome with the tax and transfer system? But like actual people really understand that as very different reasons and ways of doing uh, redistribution. And so I, I guess I want to say like that's that's materialist, even though it's like not materialist for as an economist would understand it. It's still like a, 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 a caring of, of politics because it's affecting your under because politics influences what you think the economy is doing for you and the, the vision of the world that you. That, yeah. Awesome. I'm with you now. Let's okay. talk about monopsony. OK. OK. So why. Do, so there's a big literature and many uh, studies fail to find that work, workers don't seem to leave after wage cuts. Why yeah. is that? Um, so I think the easiest way to think about it is that there's, um, there's, <laughs> okay, so the way I put it, there's like three, there, there's, there's three different forces that give rise to, to, to monopsony. And one is, uh, there's just not that many employers around, <laughs> uh, is, uh, is sort of the easiest one for, for, for people to digest. And it's particularly true because like within an occupation and for example, in a sort of rural environment, there's just like not that many other jobs that have that same uh, job title uh, in that in, in in that area. And so, just like jobs, jobs are not uh, jobs of the same type mm. are like not that uh, 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 available. So that's simple. But I think that's not actually the bulk of it. I think the bulk of it comes because even if there are many jobs around, like how you find jobs and how you get the idea that this job could work for you is like through either random encounters with uh, job postings and your social networks and 
you know, I think one of the big advantages that college gets you is uh, like your senior year of college winds up being like a place where you encounter many possible job opportunities. And so there's a very, there's a very competitive labor market facing you in your senior year of college. And, um, uh, and, and so like how you figure out about the jobs that are out there is like a, uh, uh, is another source of monopsy power that like you don't know about all the jobs that you could plausibly get. And then the, the third, and I think maybe the most interesting, is that you've kind of got to make a job work with all of the other parts of your life, like where you live, your childcare, um, do you get along with your coworkers, your boss, like do you like get intrinsic meaning out of the task that you're doing, do you not? And so as long as you have some diversity in those preferences of like of, for, for, the, for the same job, and some people really like this job and other people don't, that employers, and that, you know, employers don't know which, which workers like what, but they just know there's some workers that like this and some workers that don't, then what they can do is kind of like lowball the wage and they'll lose the workers that don't particularly care for the non-wage dimensions of this job, but to be able to keep the ones that really do love this job for, because they're very close to their kids' childcare, or it's not close to their house or whatever, and can and they'll stay even though they're getting paid like say less than their 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 productivity and that's I think like you know those three things are kind of the core core forces about you know if you had this hypothetical wage cut like a lot of you know some workers would leave but a lot would just kind of be like eh, I guess I have to stay. Awesome. And so um, you argue that worker attrition and worker labor churn hurts union formation. If people aren't spending time together, and you and I both like that book on Walmart and all these disparate mm-hmm. sporadic workers. Okay. But in the current moment, post-COVID, it's that labor churn which has supported pro-wage growth. And so if we look at what's actually helped low-wage workers, assuming there has been some improvement in real wages, it seems that what really helps workers in America, based on the current institutions, isn't unions, but just tight labor markets, uh, like in job I mean, scarcity. Yeah, I mean, it has to be the case, right? Because like union density is 6%, so mm-hmm. you're not going to get a broad-based increase in, in wages with... Um, with tight labor markets alone. And it's certainly going to be the case that tight labor markets are a good tool for, for, for raising wages. I think, um, and, but I also think, you know, it's an open question to what extent tight labor markets are also driving the increase in unionization. Oh, really? Because, you know, like the, if you think that the way in which employers like fight these union drives, they fire all the organizers, but that's a lot harder to do when the unemployment rate's three and a half percent. And so, like, the, the, a lot of, like, the employer intimidation stuff just works less well when the labor market is tight. Now, there's some papers that sort of, uh, there's a recent paper by Charlotte Petzold and co-authors that finds, um, uh, that finds that the effects of tightness are small. And I think that's, that's maybe true in general, but I think in the sectors that we've seen big increases in unionizing, like the Starbucks uh, mm-hmm. recognizing, uh, uh, like two days ago, Starbucks recognized the union. That's kind of amazing. Um, and that is, I feel like that's, there must be something about that being driven by tight labor markets. And here's maybe the way, that, one way to think about it is that Starbucks is sort of like a generally like a high wage-ish employer in the cafe kind of market. And so if you're at Dunkin' Donuts, which is at the lo- lower wage, but not that much lower wage, but imagine. And, and then, uh, so, so, you know, a tight labor market, you don't like your job at Dunkin' Donuts, you like quit, but you quit to like a Starbucks. But then when you're at a Starbucks, 
you're like, if you don't like the job, there's not like another really high wage mm-hmm, job mm-hmm, on the table mm-hmm. for you. So it becomes much more that you're like willing to organize this place. Uh-huh. There's also interesting other stories. So this, um, so it's like a Hushman thing, right? It's, it's an exit voice kind of. Yeah, tra- yeah, yeah, well, nice. and it's interesting is it an exit? There's like an exit voice substitution at the bottom, but then there are compliments at the top. Right, and, right, right. Uh, 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 and I think that's like one way to, that's like sort of super how I nice, think about super it. nice. Um, and there's other interesting things like um, this one sociologist was doing a bunch of interviews with um, uh, with Starbucks workers was telling me that um, basically in like you know one of the underlying determinants right is that Starbucks offers like a very uh, trans and queer friendly health benefits package and so that it wound up being this like drawing place for uh, uh, um, you know uh, uh, gender fluid kind of okay. identities and stuff in in uh, in like 2018, and so then with COVID, this became like the nucleus again of like an organizing like when you know you're not sure if you're going to die at work and your management's disappeared. Mm-hmm. That but that these kinds of like communities at work could kind of be like the nucleus for 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 organizing. That's an interesting hypothesis. There's another thing about the role of salts in 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 organizing. So salting, do you know what this is? No. So salting, it used to be called colonizing, much less good term, but it was it's this tactic where like workers get hired by a company to organize it. And so okay. you kind of like let the boss pay your organizing payroll. Um, and so a lot of the, the early, some of the early Starbucks wins are driven by like deliberate attempts of like union activists uh, to like get, get hired at Starbucks and like try to organize it. And so like these early Buffalo Starbucks organizing were like dr- kind of driven by, 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 by salts. And that's like, okay, you get there, you try to build this organizing committee and then you sort of turn it into, into, into unionizing. And I think like, again, one of the reasons that works very well is like when there's a labor shortage, it's very easy for salts to get hired. It's very hard for them to get fired. And so there might be a real complementarity between the strategy of like salting a workplace and uh, the tight labor markets. Awesome. I have a question about social cohesion. So in these cafes, it's like a lot of young workers. Yep. But in this exact same demographic, we might see some ideological polarization between by gender, like young men and women having different views on things. Do you, when your conversations within unions, do you see that as an issue that men and women thinking differently and then struggling to? It's there's definitely a, a, like a. Um, we haven't noticed it so much on the men and women thing, but you definitely have this like political polarization, particularly when you go into like rural uh, rural shops, like. And it's, but it's very interesting, right? Like coming back to our earlier conversation, there's plenty of like Trump supporters that are pro-union. And they're actually some of the most militantly pro-union people. And it's like, and, and uh, it's like for very good reasons. They're kind of like pro-Trump for many of the reasons they're like pro-union. Um, and, uh, and so they, one of the things that unions need to overcome in these contexts is like the view that they're just like Democrat hacks. Mm. And that they're actually independent organizations right. representing the interests of like like workers themselves, and not just trying to like bring them into 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 some like third third organization. Um, and so you'll but political polarization among workers is a big obstacle. Oh, right, okay. to, to to unionization. So I'm, I'm sure sometimes that lines up with gender, but sometimes mm. it's just like you know there's just like very much politically polarized workplace. Okay, I want to ask about automation. Um, will tight labor markets run out of steam when employers increase automation? So I was just in South Korea. After they had a couple of minimum wage hikes, all the restaurants now have digital screens. So I can go into a restaurant in Korea, write my, do my order on a screen, and the entire restaurant is run with one chef. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there's a 
paper by Orly Ashenfelter and Jarajda that lo- looks at the effects of like minimum wages on in McDonald's on the adoption of like the the, oh, the screen stuff. No effect. Um, oh. And uh, um, and so so I think uh, you know to the extent that this happens like as a result of a tight labor market. I think that's like kind of great. That's like how you get productivity improvement. Yes. Um, and so like like everyone gets a job. And like productivity goes up, and like okay, you start automating, but like you, you're not causing unemployment because it's just like the labor market. So you're not tight. scared about automation at all. Um, I'm not scared about automation so much. Wrecking the, I'm worried about automation. You know, driving us to like <laughs> in geopolitical conflicts, and uh, uh, and that that's like much more. Like I'm like, oh my god, what's going to happen to 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 like misinformation and just like the quality of democracies. Oh, so like the effective algorithms in screwing yeah, people's yeah, perceptions. Yeah, and like, and, and, uh, uh, and so like the, the wreckage that it's going to inflict on the labor market, I don't think, I think that stuff takes like a generation. To, do you, what do you think of the argument that automation is largely responsible for the rise in inequality? I think it can't be all of it. Like, I think there's some, I know like, like there's some papers that do find that you can explain all of it. Mm. I just think it like almost certainly couldn't be all of it because so let me give you two mm. kind of I, I actually think like like you know there's an argument for uh all of it kind of being like tight labor markets and so automation matters through the extent that it makes labor markets not tight um but then macroeconomic policy could have like pushed against the wind or like you can do other things that increase you know labor demand for low-wage workers and so it happens to be that we had patterns of automation that let, that that reduced the wages of of low wage workers, but it didn't have to be the case, right? The counterfactual isn't just turn off the automation and nothing else. The counterfactual is that there's a whole bunch of other like policy priorities you could have done, uh, like you could have tried to keep uh, you know keep the unemployment rate super super low consistently, um, and that that could have pushed back against uh, uh, this, these pressures on on on, on low wages. So I think automation is probably part of the story, but I guess I'm like reluctant to think of automation, no automation as the right counterfactual, as opposed to automation with the policy bundle that we had mm-hmm. together with like, like that same automation with a different policy bundle could have delivered a very different set of labor market outcomes. Because if I look at like the post, post-1960 period, as I see it, you know, you have the rise of East Asia with manufacturing and that global competition encouraged either one, outsourcing production or two, US employers increasingly automating to reduce some of their costs. So I guess I'm sort of like, here's another one, right? Mm-hmm. Which is actually one of the things I'm currently working on, which is just the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And so it's just like, you know, the US is spending between like five and 10% of GDP it's an enormous amount of money on military stuff, even after World War II. And that's like propping up a big chunk of the manufacturing sector. And then with um, the, the end of Vietnam, but then Reagan kind of builds it back up. And then, but then with the Cold War, it sort of like comes back mm-hmm. down. So that like another sort of force operating in the background alongside the automation and the East Asian import penetration is uh, just like like the 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 end of the the end of the Cold War and like changing patterns of military expenditure and uh, uh, and so like you know we used to when you're actually in a war you like produce boots and bombs and yeah. tanks but then in peacetime you're like 
R&D and missiles and, uh, uh, and that kind of thing. And that stuff that the peacetime stuff tends to benefit skilled workers and the wartime stuff tends to benefit blue collar really true? Worker. I mean, we, I think we have some evidence that we're, the we're peacetime, peacetime production. Tell, the peacetime tell me military more. production when it's focused on the, in the what Cold is War peacetime period, military production. It's missile missiles. It's like basically like after the end of the Korean war, basically, you know, Russia sends, we have Sputnik and then yes, we yes, sort of yes, like, yeah. like, and then the U S kind of really pivots towards like, producing uh like putting a lot of money into the into icbms and the ICBM, air force sorry uh intercontinental ballistic missiles got it okay, um, and uh that that uh and then you sort of move military spending from like blue collar manufacturing states like michigan to like uh mountain states uh because that's where the missiles are well protected and so you kind of get like a a, a transfer of economic activity in space but it's also a transfer of economic activity away from the boots and bombs stuff to the like space age stuff um and so that's that's like just a one and you know it's it's it, if it was a small amount of money, it would just be a small, but it's, like, it's an extremely large amount of money. But is that, so that, that's a trend <laughs> so, that occurs over time. So couldn't it just be a function of over time, uh, technology improves and favors high skilled workers? Well, it's true. But like, then you get this variation, right? So it's like, then there's Korea, you go bombs, bombs, boots, and then you go to missiles later. Then you get Vietnam, you go back to bombs, boots, and then you uh, go to the missiles uh, after. Okay. And so it's like, it's a, it's kind of this, uh, yeah, it's like when you, when you're, actually producing for the military you're like when you're like in conflict like in the ukraine like it's like yeah 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 it'd be nice to have the high-tech r&d r&d intensive stuff but it's also you just need a lot of ordnance uh and that's blue collar work is to so just on top of like these other economic sort of raw mm. economic forces i just want to add another one but i also like just kind of think that we shouldn't think of the raw economic supply and demand as kind of the only things on the table, there's a whole set of other uh, like organizational and institutional things that you can do holding the technology fixed. And so we shouldn't take it for granted that, you know, oh, this technology changed and therefore we got the, the labor market that we did. There were things that you could have done. Um, and uh, uh, um, yeah, to keep wages high, for example. Awesome, I have two more questions, okay? okay? Yep. One is a little bit dark. Yep. Okay. What might lead firms to exercise more monopsony power? So in one of your papers, you argue that, you know, even if U.S. employers are monopsonists, they don't necessarily exercise it more. Yep. What would cause them to exercise more of it? What kind of legal, institutional, ideological changes, like under a Trump presidency, might motivate firms to exercise more monopsony power? Well, so there's this paper by Ajimoglu, Hay, and Lemaire that sort of makes this point that, like, one of the things, well, my interpretation of the paper, I'm not sure if they actually uh, agree with this, but is... Um, uh, that when you put in a CEO with an MBA, oh yes, uh, uh, that you see like, you know, you'll see wages fall for incumbent workers, and then you see quits increase, and so I think that's totally consistent with like, you know, the MBA coming in and sort of saying, all right, the you know we might have we got to trim the fat here, and so where before you had managers that were like worried about kind of like morale or these other uh, uh, or just like we're like ah, you know I've just got got to keep jobs jobs high is just part of what I'm trying to do as a manager. And then you get these MBAs that are interested in just like minimizing costs. And so then they wind up like exercising monopsony power that might have been not exercised yes. by a non-MBA. So ideology can increase monopsony power. Totally, totally. And I think that's like an interesting, once you have this view of the labor market as like riven with monopsony, mm -hmm. it becomes a lot more of an interesting place because all of the rooms for like culture and all of the uh, uh, and ideology 
have like a room to move. Because if the labor market is perfectly competitive, these like MBA, non-MBA managers, they all just have to like take right. the market as yes. given. But once they have room to exercise market power, they're able to, you know, some can choose to exercise it, some cannot choose to exercise it. And so you just get like a lot more space for culture and norms to influence directly the things that economists study, like wages and employment, because the market is not like this iron awesome. force awesome. Uh, 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 constraining everyone. Okay, final question. And yep. this is a weird tangent. Yep. Okay, so you and I were recently both in Oaxaca. Yep. Um, and what is your view of digital nomads in Latin America, where there have been major protests against the soaring costs of housing? So tourists and digital nomads raise demands for local goods and services, but they also increase house prices via a massive injection in capital spending. What is the pro-worker response? Like, what do you think? Like, you know, it's a big issue in Roma, Condesa. That's, that's, so, so, like, I think, so there's the economics answer, which is just, which, uh, which is where my brain immediately went to, which is, like, tr thinking through the costs and benefits on different groups of, 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 uh, of citizens, right? So you'll have like a bunch of people brought in to, that will will like work tourist jobs. Um, and then you'll have like, you know, the people that own land are like, great, I'm making a lot of money. But then, the, you know, a lot of the like incumbent renters are like, crap, my rents, uh, uh, my, my rents went up. And so you can kind of do that. And you can imagine like the winners and losers from that. I do think there's another interesting thing, which is that like, the tourist jobs are often uh, seen even by the people that work them as lacking dignity and that you're like, oh, I'm just being like pulled in to serve mm, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, for sure. into the service economy mm. where like I kind of have to, my, my day job is being uh, obsequious towards these foreigners. And I think that's like the, the most... Uh, distasteful part of the tourist economy is the kind of, you know, you wind up reproducing relationships of service. It's all when, you know, it's all Pareto optimal from like, a, or, you know, Pareto improving mm -hmm. from an econ perspective. But I think if you have this like more smaller Republican perspective of like, oh, you know, you want a society where people kind of encounter each other at equals, that does not happen mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, in these places. And you wind up taking actually like old colonial patterns of inequality. And exactly. that's exactly what makes them great tourist destinations is that tourists can come in and slot themselves into the same amazing experiences uh, that, that colonial elites once had. And it's, it's great if you're, mm -hmm. if you're like, uh, 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 if, you, if you have a lot of money and you might think that, okay, we're bringing jobs and like bringing income to this place. And that is true. And so, so it probably should continue on an economic development level, but it's also interesting to be like, what would you have to do to reformat that relationship so it could happen much more on the terms of like civic equality than the kind of, you know, uh, like reproduction in already extremely socially unequal places of that, where it's like, you know, and the skin tone differences like are extremely salient. And they're, they're you know, in places like Oaxaca, or, it's like this, the, the differences between indigenous and Latino mm -hmm just get like, you know, the tourists come in and they're like the Latinos vis-a-vis. -vis. Uh, and, and so I think it winds up um, a lot of the, you know, the tourist economy reinforces the, 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 the racial inequality that already exists in lots of these places. And, um, you know, so, so I'm, you know, I, 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 I'm not, not guilty yeah, of yeah. it. And, uh, uh, um, and, and, but, it, but it's something I think that, 
uh, and I, I also think it's something that, you know, if to just come back, it's like, it's one of the things that unions do for service work mm. is that they regiment it and bureaucratize it. So those relationships of like, uh, of, of, of like the service work does not necessarily have this kind of servitude character. But I should add, it's not just a colonial thing. Like in Amsterdam, they've got big concerns about it, right? That's yeah, sure, that's true. But I think in Amsterdam, you know, you can kind of just make the much more of the like, maybe we should just tax the tourists more. Right. <laughs> and like, that's fine. And I think you should definitely tax the tourists more and you should take all, you know, particularly the poor countries should just like tax mm. these people mm. enormously. Um, but I think, you know, beyond the, the just the, the economic raising revenue, I think the trying to um, have the labor market, you know, the, that supplies the services that tourists or digital nomads need, delivering like not just high wages, but also like dignified work is kind of like a, a, a thing that you would need something like, I think, local local community groups or unions to kind of like demand that and win it. But here we see the exact same parallels with manufacturing, right? When there are low barriers to entry, you know, for making cut, make, trim uh, garment industries, you know, those competed for international capital, competed for international barriers by lowering their costs, right? And and, uh, there's that book on globalization being associated with lower taxes because you're trying to attract that foreign capital. Exactly the same thing is happening with digital nomads. There are parts of Malaysia, parts of... uh, you know, all over Southeast Asia, yeah. where they try to attract I mean, digital nomads by lowering their taxes, right? So the same things are working. In yeah, sort of yeah, global it's like it's like it's like the service sector sweatshops. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly, uh, exactly, uh, yeah, exactly. No, no, exactly. I think that. I mean, and like with sweatshops, right? Like the the question the question economists want you to think about is always like, well, the crappy jobs are better than no jobs, and so it's like you know, Paul Krugman famously, like in praise of sweatshops. Uh, makes that thing. But, you know, one of the things you, again, have when you understand the labor market is this, you know, uh, is this frictional thing is that there's plenty of scope for making jobs better that uh, unless you, like, push for it, you're not going to get it. And you can make the job better without losing everyone. And that, like, finding that space is, like, kind of one thing that's, like, you know, a smart union can do. And you'll see that unions in Bangladesh and Myanmar, back when Myanmar was democracy, were sort of, like, on this. It's like, this is something that, you know, you're in these textile sectors and you're trying to figure out how to raise wages in a way that like benefits your workers without driving industry out. And I just think we need some st- stuff like that in the tourism sector as well. Suresh, yeah. I think you're amazing and fantastic. And this was brilliant. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.